you know, I get called in the middle of the night, four o'clock in the morning to go to a, to come down here for a minute. Who knew it was going to turn into this? And who knew it was going to turn into this tourist tsunami that's engulfed Savannah? Still to this day, people still go to that house. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial in Richland County history. Dr. John Boyle is accused of killing his wife, Noreen, and burying her body in the basement of his new home in Erie, Pennsylvania. The 12-year-old son finally took the stand. As I heard a scream, I heard a thud. It was about this loud. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. When I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself, and it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Hey, movers, what's going on? I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. I just want to say it's been really cool getting to know a lot of you during my IG Lives, which I have every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on my Instagram channel, which is at Collier Landry, which should be like right there. And uh, I love just getting to know you guys and getting you guys ask me questions. You ask me questions about my story, about my life. I can ask you questions. And so I want to thank you guys for tuning in. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please like and subscribe. I really appreciate it. It helps with the algorithm. You guys know the drill. Thank you very much. My guest today is a gentleman named Depp Kirkland. Depp was the assistant, one of the assistant DAs in a case. This case came to national prominence through a film that was directed by the amazing Clint Eastwood. It was called Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. There were three mistrials, I believe, in this case. Um, and then I think the fourth ended in a conviction. You will get to hear uh, Depp explain the case and his role in it more. It, it'll be very raw and unedited. Here to discuss all the wonderful games that lawyers play is my guest, Depp Kirkland. So Depp, thank you so much for being with us today. Now, you cross our paths because you are getting out of the lawyer games and jumping into the Hollywood games. That's right. I don't know which is worse. Oh, I mean better. Uh, excuse me. Yeah. yeah, I would I would concur with that statement. Uh, I think they both have sharks and cesspools. Yep. Yes, <laughs> take your pick. Take your pick. Which uh, group of bottom feeders you might want to be a part of? Um, now you wrote this book, uh, Lawyer Games After Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, which we've all seen. I believe the movie came out in late late nineteen nineties, early two thousands. Kevin Spacey, who is now a Hollywood pariah, and uh, Jude Law, and I believe it was directed by Clint Eastwood. I think Allison Eastwood is in it. Lady Chablis right. makes, an, makes an appearance. Uh, but why don't you tell us a little bit about the book and sort of your, your background? Well, I actually started out uh, originally from Savannah. Uh, I haven't lived there now in years, but I was originally from there. And I started out as a, a young whippersnapper lawyer and went to the DA's office. I did misdemeanor cases like everybody else. And then I left and went out into private practice. And then I went back to the DA's office sometime later as the chief deputy, chief, uh, chief assistant district uh, DA. And I basically ran the trial teams and this and that and tried capital cases and all of that sort of thing. During the course of that phase of my career, this case occurred. So um, interestingly enough, I lived in uh, in historic Savannah downtown in a place called Trustees Gardens, very nice little townhouse. At about three in the morning, one morning, I get a call from a detective with the Savannah Police Department. 
who told me that they were at a murder scene or they were at the scene of a killing, let's put it that way. And they wanted me to come over, which is a little unusual. Today, I think in a larger, larger municipalities, LA, for example, where you guys are, they do have teams that go out to, to scenes from the DA's office because they want them there in case they have search issues or questions or that sort of thing. That was sure. not done so much back then. Uh, and the fact was they couldn't find the DA. Not I shouldn't. I'm not slandering his name. He, I guess he didn't answer the phone, and I did. So I was I was chosen. Um, and this was a homicide detective. So I went to this house. The house is uh, well known in Savannah now because of this midnight phenomenon that has swept through Savannah. People, uh, tourism there is insane. I don't know how many millions of people go to Savannah every year. It started actually with the book and the movie about midnight, this murder, because it involved a very wealthy uh, antique dealer, one of the most prominent people in the city who lived in a mansion on a, on a square in Savannah. Uh, so of course, when I was told where I'm going, they're like, oh yeah, it's the it's the old Mercer house on the square in Savannah. And I live downtown, so it took me two minutes to get there. So I went to the scene. Um, I go, I, I I went in the house, and interestingly enough, there were uh, there was a uh, fellow in a in his I guess I don't know in the, in those houses uh, the parlor of the mansion, sitting with his two lawyers who were already on the scene, which is interesting, which I'll get to. And in a room on the, the cut, uh, study to the one side, they lead me in. I met the, uh, I met the uh, two homicide detectives there. We go in the room. The body is still on the floor. A fellow named Danny Hensford, a young man, 19 years of age. Face down on the floor, three bullet holes. And they tell me that the gentleman, James Williams, who owned the house and was sitting in the parlor had shot the young man and he claimed that it was self-defense because he said that he had been attacked with another pistol. Now, the interesting thing is, right off, is the two pistols involved in this case were two World War II vintage German Lugers. Not okay. a lot of people have those hanging around their house. He didn't no. only have two, he had more than two. So I was told, I said, well, why do, you, why do you need me? And they said, because this something doesn't look right. Something smells. And we thought because of who he is, and I knew his lawyers, I said, Tell him, hi, Bob, how you doing? I see these guys in there. So we decided to call you just to get a second opinion because this could be big. So I go in, I look, I look around and I said, you're right. This doesn't make sense, and I could explain some of it, I guess. I don't want to get too much into the details, but there were facets of that scene, aspects of that scene that, no, 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 no. The most, the most telling part of it was that there was a chair, an antique, heavy, wooden chair with curved back, and that chair was about halfway up the the backside of this of this young man. The back leg of the chair had his pants leg pinned underneath it against the floor, against the carpet. 
like that doesn't make any sense how did it get how did him how did he get back up under that chair so far and how did that how did that chair leg get on top of his pants leg if he was supposedly standing up attacking the guy with the gun so no it didn't make sense and i actually went through the scene with them they showed me what they found uh, and I actually discovered a, another piece of evidence that they hadn't, I guess, noticed right away, which was that supposedly the, the fellow who was still alive, Jim Williams, had been sitting at his desk. This is his story. He was sitting at his desk when this crazy kid, Hansford, who lived in his house, and he took care of him, okay. came up to his room with a Luger and shot at him, missed and he got his own Luger out of a drawer next to his desk and returned fire, shot him three times, defending himself, end of story. What had happened was that the bullet from the original Luger, the one that Hansford had supposedly fired, had uh, had pierced a uh, stack of papers on the desk. It had hit a brass belt buckle and had ricocheted and then go on and then hit a wall behind where Williams had been sitting. The interesting thing about that was that when it went through these stack of papers, the bullet created a shower of paper fragments. The Luger that Williams had used to quote unquote defend himself, he had placed on the desk after he had shot Hansford. Follow this, the paper fragments created by the supposed Hansford shot or on top of the Luger that Williams had supposedly used afterwards. That was impossible because the paper fragment cloud was created after Williams had already placed his defensive weapon on his desk. So I said, so I showed it to them and they're like, oh my God, you're right. So we photographed, they were already photographing things. They photographed things. I said, all right, so here's what has to happen. You have to arrest him. Okay, that's what we thought. We just wanted to check with you. So I go into the other room, and then I'll get to, to the details and what you want to talk about the case itself, the trial. I go into the other room, into the parlor, to inform Bob Duffy, the original lawyer who was there on the scene with, with Williams, that he was about to be arrested so that he could call, make arrangements for bail, whatever it is he wanted to do. Because at this point, he says, it's self-defense. He thinks that they're going to leave. So I go into the other room. Williams is sitting there at the, on the sofa next to Duffy. And I said, you just want to let you know that your client is going to be arrested. He says, for what charge? I said, for murder. And instead of, uh, instead of the lawyer answering, Williams himself looked up at me. He was incredulous. He could not believe that that was going to happen. And he says to me, he said, you know, if I had wanted to shoot you, I could have done it because there's another pistol in this desk drawer, uh, drawer, drawer of the table, a side table next to the uh, sofa he was sitting on. Well, because he wasn't your normal defendant, the police had not secured the area within the control of the accused to check for weapons. So he's sitting next to a side table, look at a drawer, there's another looter. Wow. So... Obviously, you show up, police are on the scene, you show up, you are automatically know something's rotten in Denmark. Right. And this gentleman, so he's a very wealthy antiques dealer. And correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And the two the board, suspected the board, murder, 
he's on the board of the of the museum. He's on. I mean, he's very. He started. He was one of the people who began the historic restoration movement in the city of Savannah. Okay, so he's so he's probably fairly well connected. It's it's safe to say. Oh yes, and again, a German Luger uh, is not a common firearm that most people not have really. possession and of. Loaded, loaded, and loaded, and ready to fire, and ready to fire. So it sounds to me right then and there that this is a cut and dry case. You have all the evidence laid out before you. Uh, you're talking to his defense lawyer who you happen to know, right? Or his right. personal lawyer. And, you know, hey, we're going to book your your client and start making some preparations to get him bailed out, yada, yada. And I would presume that uh, the swift hand of justice did not play out the way that you potentially <laughs> thought it would. Or not maybe quite. you did. And it turned into a circus and a fiasco, which is why they made a movie out of it, right? That's right. It's so like why don't you? Oh, I'm sure the entire story. Sure. So why don't you give us a little bit of background here on, or not a little bit of background, but what what happened next? As well, he, uh, he, you know, he makes bail. Uh, sure. I actually, I, I, I was so uh, accommodating with these folks, particularly. I knew the, I knew his lawyer. He's a nice fellow. I have nothing to. He says, "Well, we need to have a bail hearing." Well, by now it's like four in the morning. Sure. And so I go with them. They find a judge. They wake up a judge. I went with them. We wake the judge up. And he comes out in a bathrobe and we have a bail hearing in his living room. He sets oh. bail. <laughs> you know, myself, the detectives, sets bail. Off he goes. He posts bail. He calls his friend who is at the house and has him bring the bail money down in a sack in uh, actual cash. He says, you know where money is. He brings a paper bag to the jail with whatever it was, 10,000, now or many thousands of dollars in it, and off he goes back home. Yes, I thought, well, here we go. To me, and to your point, I have said, I said this before, because this thing, this case was tried four times. Four times. This, four times, over a space of, over a period of nine and a half years. Right, so I had always thought, because I left the DA's office after the first trial, which I tried with the DA and I, I set the case up. I handled all the expert witnesses. I handled the construction of it. And then I left and I went to Atlanta to work for the governor. So the last three trials, I was not there. And I was asked about it because it's a very famous case. What do you think? The first case was reversed. The second, the first uh, trial ended in conviction. Second one ended in conviction. They were both overturned. The third one ended in a hung jury, 11 to one for guilty because of something that I'll tell you about. This person ended up on the jury. It shouldn't have been. And nine and a half years later, the case was finally moved to Augusta, Georgia because of publicity, supposedly. And he was actually acquitted nine and a half years later. Now, I was asked, I was asked about this all the time. Well, what do you think about the Williams case? What do you think's going on down there? And I said, look, I don't know why they keep reversing. There are some shenanigans at the Supreme Court. There's a lot going on with this guy. He has very prominent people behind him. But I will tell you this, there's a, uh, a, there is a judge that was a friend of mine and I had mentioned something about this to him and his dad had been a judge. And he said, my dad told me something once. You have this thing about these lawyers or lawyers are magicians. Oh, I'm gonna hire so-and-so and I'm gonna get off. And I have to tell you that the, the, the defense lawyer in the first trial of Williams was a fellow named Bobby Lee Cook. 
who is world renowned. He may not be with us. I don't know if he's still around. He'd be 90. He'd have to be close to 100 today. But he had tried 500 murder trials. He'd represented the Carnegies. I mean, this guy was the, the sartorial, uh, goateed quarter of Shakespeare. That guy, that's who showed up to defend him. One of the biggest, most famous trial lawyers, and particularly in murder cases, in the United States. It, so kind of like an F. Lee Bailey type. But, but, but with a better record. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> with a better record than F. Lee had. But yes. That guy is the one. It's the one that uh, I was talking to Brenda earlier. Is that you know there are things that happen in a criminal case when you have a very prominent uh, uh, accused person. The first thing you see is the perp walk. You see the police with this famous person with they're handcuffed and they're being ushered in to the jail with the media and all the flashbulbs and the cameras are all going off. The next thing you see is that person walking out of the jail with attorney X Uh right into the face of the microphones where they have their press conference. They said, you tell, you know, when you see who the lawyer is, and you you know that we've all done this because I have done it myself and I see who it is. I'm like, oh yeah, he did it. (laughs) It's like there there are lawyers at that level that when you see them show up in a case, you know the defendant is in trouble because sure. they're very expensive. Well, that's what comes, happened. You know, Mark Garagos comes to mind. Um, <laughs> Robert on. Shapiro, you know, yep. uh, spot on. Johnny Cochran, yep. God rest his soul. You know, I think yep. those are the big, those are the heavy hitters. Alan Dershowitz, you know, those are the guys. all of whom I believe represented OJ Simpson. Yes, they did. Simultaneously, if I'm not mistaken. Including F. Lee Bailey, who uh, had, in fact, the last, the, before the OJ case, the last case that Bailey had tried was actually Patty Hearst and he had lost it. So this dream team, I know that's a whole different subject, but the dream team was not such a dream team. Johnny Cochran made his, made his bones suing the police department for, for police harassment, which was fine. He, you know, made a, made a good living doing that. He, didn't have, he was not, a, he was not a murder. He was not a, uh, a trial or the tail a whole lot of murder cases, but Hey, that's a, the OJ case is a whole different thing. So sure. that's what you thought. What I thought, well, I said to people who asked me about the Williams case after I was gone. And I said, I have to tell you this, and this is to share with you what the, my friend's judge father had told him about that sort of thing. These high powered, famous magicians as lawyers, his dad had said, I'll tell you what, you let me pick my evidence and I'll let you pick your lawyer. Hmm. And that's what I told people. I said, if Jim Williams is tried a hundred times for this murder, he will be convicted a hundred times. Why? Because gravity doesn't change and there's nothing he can do about it. There's the chair leg, there's blood that is in uh, all over the, the hand of this kid who supposedly had shot at him. There's a, he had put a Luger underneath the kid's hand. His fingers are completely chose, closed in what was called a death grip. When people are shot, occasionally they will clench their fist and they'll uh-huh. take him to the chest. This kid yeah. is on the floor. He's got his one hand under his chest. The other has been pulled out. His fingers slightly uncurled and laid on the handle of a Luger, right? There's no blood anywhere on that Luger. This wow. kid's palm is filled with blood because he had bled into onto it underneath his chest because that's how he died. So that, and then you've got the paper fragments. You've uh, The defendant in his story had him on the wrong end of the desk. 
He said he came in from there, but his feet are at the other end. I, I could go on. There's so much physical evidence in this case. And he thought he was very clever. He thought that he could get on the stand and say what he wanted and they would believe him. And he also put on performances. He was quite quite a quite a character watch he made a movie out of it well i mean yeah kevin spacey played him so i'm sure he was so let me let me let me ask you so was it true that this um this perp uh that came in was that his really his lover yes okay and what did so was this you know this young lover was did he have family in the area or was he just sort of like a transient like a grifter he had family in the area yep so he a, he, did so he, they, they never they, in essence got justice for their son no they did not and i i was contacted by his sister because the thing that part of the defense tactic was to portray him and if you see the movie you'll see that jude wall played this now one thing i will say kevin spacey the pariah that you had mentioned. If anybody nailed a, nailed a part and nailed Jim Williams, it was Spacey in that movie. That oh, was sure. Jim Williams as far as, as, as if he had been pulled up and from the grave and put on the screen. Jude Law portrayed the kid, Danny Hansford. It was like he was some sort of creature from the deep. He was like he was this evil, this embodiment of evil. That was not Danny Hansford. Danny Hansford was a kid. He was a street punk. Jim Williams used to, this is according to the testimony, not me. He would cruise the parks. And that's what they did. Some of these kids in the parks of Savannah late sure. at night. It was a big uh, underground culture. Jim Williams used to have a, uh, and this is in the film, he had a Christmas party. Everybody who was anybody came to his Christmas party. He would then open up the doors on the second floor of the mansion and he would play the pipe organ. I mean, it was an amazing event. If you were the mayor, if you were anybody in Savannah, you went to Jim Williams' Christmas party. And I know that actually uh, the ID officer in this case, who handled some things that helped us with evidence later when working on the book, she worked security for him at those parties as an off-duty police officer. So she knew all about it. She said, oh yeah, we did, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was on, say, Saturday night or Friday night. The next night, he had another party, but it wasn't advertised, but it was also at the mansion because he still had the lights up. He still had all of the food. He still had all of the booze. And it was for men only. And it was all guys, all in tuxedos. So wow, that wow. was, it was a uh, Williams led. And I, you know, that happens in some cities where people have double lives and that's fine. He had his public life where he would have a woman go with him. So it's like his date. And then he would, you know, the next night it was different. Danny Hansford was a street urchin who was very cute and hung out in the parks. And he would do what he did for money. You know, the kids do. Jim Williams picked him up and took him home. And that's something I talk about in the book. They, I believe it was this obsessive relationship. He bought him a car. He bought him jewelry. He buys, well, see, Danny Hansford was not gay. Could have been, been fine, but he wasn't. Sure. He did what he did for money. So, for example, there was a period of time right before, I think it was the day before he was killed, or the day, day or two before he was killed. Jim Williams gave him 
a, uh, a right expensive gold necklace. We knew what it cost. I don't remember now, but it's in the book about what today's value of that thing would have been. It was a lot. He gives Danny this gold necklace, chain necklace. Uh -huh. Danny takes the necklace and gives it to his girlfriend. Williams notices that he doesn't have the necklace. So now that to me, just, you know, I'm not a prosecutor or a, uh, a lawyer, but that to me sounds like that could be something that could be called motive. There's no doubt. <laughs> that maybe interesting Mr. Williams wouldn't be very excited about that notion. No. And, and, and if he so had this he, gay he fantasy or trial. he had this fantasy about this guy, you know, that was straight, that was playing gay, gay for pay. Um, he was obsessed he, with him. Obsessed yeah. with him. He was, he was his plate. He was his boy toy. He did not like, he didn't like him having a girlfriend. The, I mean, he didn't say this at trial until later. The first trial, there was nothing to that. He was just a kid that he had taken off the street because he felt sorry for him. Sure. He was trying of to get him, get him, help him get his life back together. Now here's Absolutely. the thing about, mur about murder cases. And you know, this, uh, Brenna knows this. Yeah. There's no necessity. There's no requirement. There's no requirement that you prove motive in a murder case. Well, why don't you say that again one more time? There is no requirement that you prove motive in a murder case. It's not an element of the offense. However, if you don't, juries don't like it. They want to know why this happened. Motive is important. You need to prove, I know they say motive means an opportunity. What you really need, that's for investigators. What you really need for a conviction is opportunity means and you need to prove it happened and i don't care why it happened if you've got a video of the killing you don't need it doesn't matter why somebody got mad or why they flew off the handle or why they pulled the trigger they pulled the trigger if you can prove that you don't need to prove motive but you but it's important too because juries want to know what that was why would somebody do this why did this happen that's interesting right so so i did a ted talk um, about my pursuit of making my film, which was a murder in Mansfield about the murder of my mother by my father. And I mm. witnessed the murder happen and I testified oh, at trial for two and a half days um, against uh, my father and put essentially put my father in prison, right? I wouldn't let him get away with it. Nobody believed me except for one detective. And over the course of like 25 days, he and I put together everything. And I found this picture, this house that my father had had in his truck. And that's where they turned up, ended up finding my mother's body in another state. So, wow. Wow. Uh, but I, it was in this TED talk, I'm talking about, you know, that we as humans are natural empaths. So it's interesting to hear you say this because, you know, I talk about, you know, we always want to know why things happen so we can come to some sort of understanding or rationale of why these crimes are perpetrated right? Right, right and that's interesting that this even translates over into uh your prosecuting or, or prosecutors taking into account this sort of psychology when they're trying to present a murder case to a jury Absolutely. is there has to be that that bit of empathy whether it's a sympathetic form of empathy or just a general understanding or comprehension of why would they do this because without that that humanistic link you know, in our brains, it's called the mirror neuron system. Without that link that sort of bonds right. us, they can't come to any sort of rational decision one way or another. You're absolutely right about that. And in this case, I actually had someone, a friend, say to me at one point about a, uh, it was about an insanity defense for a murder case. And they were not involved in the case, but we were talking about it. 
And he said, you know, I don't understand. Doesn't it, why would someone for no reason kill somebody else? Doesn't that just per se tell you that they're insane? Because that's insane. I said, well, that's not the legal definition, but I get what you're going for. And it's what you're talking about. We want to be, we want to, and juries want to feel comfortable with their decision. So a lot of what you do as a prosecutor, and I think you do it as a defense lawyer, you try to get them to understand and be confident that if they're going to cut somebody loose, who's in a courtroom, who's accused of killing somebody, that's a bad thing. I don't want to let somebody go that maybe did it. As a defense lawyer, you have to get them to the point that they feel okay about their decision. It, ha it comes up in uh, in capital cases. It comes up in death cases sure, all the sure, time. Sure. Well, are you going to put this person to death? It's important. But in this case, it 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 uh, the motive question was a double-edged sword because William's position was he didn't stand up and say this, but this was his this was his counsel's position in the first trial was that this was a normal relationship. Maybe it was a little odd, but. There was nothing else to it. It was all fine. He was trying to help Hansford. Why in the world would someone like James Williams and his position in life decide to take the life of this nobody street urchin? Okay. But the better question is, why would a young man who has been taken off the street and is being taken care of by, I call him the golden goose, by James Williams, living in one of the finest mansions in Savannah. Yeah, by, why would he bite the hand right. that feeds him? Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. What is his, what in what is his God's name does he get from by killing James, uh, James Williams? Now, as it came and what was up their during defense? the trial. Yeah, yeah, what was their defense? As it came up during reason? the trial, uh, as it came up during the trial and later in the appellate process, their claim was, that Hansford had a plot, <laughs> it was ridiculous, but that he had a plot to kill Williams and take his money. Well, you might ask yourself, how, how exactly was he, he going to get Jim Williams' money if he yeah. killed him? And the other thing that I brought out in the book is, and where is he going, if he kills Jim Williams on Friday night, where is he sleeping Saturday night? Exactly. Yeah. But that's what a, that's what that's one of the things that the defense uh, went after was this made no sense. Danny Hansford, and that's why I think he was played the way he was by Jude Law. Danny Hansford was mentally unbalanced. That was their thing. He had been put in a regional hospital at some time when he was 17 or whatever. Twice he had been to Georgia Regional. Now, why? Because he had dr he drank a lot. He was drugged up. And he broke a door in his, his uh, apartment that he lived in. He attacked some guy that he claimed had sprayed his cat with a with a uh, an with a uh, paint with a blood killer. And he was a raucous, wild young man who lived in the streets. Okay, so that's what he was like. And he would get into trouble. He'd get drunk. He'd smash something up. And his mother would put him in Georgia Regional. And then a day later, they'd let him out. But they brought him in. They put a psychiatrist on the stand. They brought out his medical records. They tried to paint this picture that he was basically um, out of control, raging. Every that was uh, it's kind of funny actually, because during the trial, when James Williams would tell this story, and he had to tell it four times because he was tried four times, his story kept changing. But he loved. I mean, to he, tell took the, it. he took the stand. Oh, he took the stand. 
Oh, yes. He was never not take the stand. It was now, a would mistake. You, would you say this guy Williams was a narcissist and associate? No question. Uh, no yeah. question about it. Because I feel that, that only yeah. narcissists and sociopaths really feel the need to take the witness stand in a murder trial. I mean, my father did, you know, and it's just, yep. it's just, they do. They just think that they're so much smarter than everyone else and they can fool everyone and then it just backfires. But they're not even, they're not even cognizant of their sociopathy or their narcissism to realize that they're, they look terrible. No, and what they're saying not. is everyone can read through them, you know. Between the yeah. second trial, you know, I said there were four trials. Between the second and the third trial, when Williams was out, he and his lawyer did an interview with Us Magazine. <laughs> Who does that? What criminal defendant accused of murder sits down with their lawyer and starts talking about their defense? And he says during the interview, yes, we've been talking. We're hoping to do a plea maybe to voluntary manslaughter, bye-bye. What are you doing? He thought he exactly what you're talking about. He had such an ego that he believed he could not stand the district attorney. He could not stand being even questioned by this man, which I love wow. because he used that to get to him and he lost it on the stand. He did not the fourth time, but he, you could see through it. He looked like I said, he looked like he actually seemed like a, uh, a tank commander about to rouse, you know, around his tanks and attack the enemy. And everyone is going to, he's the, he's the commandant and he's going to march into battle. Now, here's the thing about this case. Because of the physical evidence, there was also some, some things going on at the other end of the desk down there with a, with a uh, marijuana cigarette that was ground into the top of his antique leather. That's what happened. I think they were having a conversation. This was the middle of the night. We we're supposed to go to Europe the next day with Danny going along as his uh, as his helper to keep yeah. him, you know, whatever. So we know what happened. So you've got that down there. You've got the chair leg on the pants. You've got him at the wrong end of the desk. You've got all of this. You've got the blood. You've got all this stuff going on. Now, if I'm a defense lawyer, I'm going to say, you know what? If you don't explain this because I don't have an explanation and you were in the room, unlike in your case, uh, yeah. there are only two people in this case. And the dead guy can't tell you what happened. Though I think he can tell you what happened from the evidence, but he can't speak. So what happened? Yeah, now without a heater and some smelling salts, that's for sure. Right. You're not going to get him up. He is coming back. So what you tell him is, look, I can't. You're going down if you can't explain this evidence. Why is that chair on his pants leg? How did it get on his pants leg? I could come up with an. You could too if you had enough time. You come up with an explanation. It was sure. knocked over for some reason. It had to have been knocked over because it was obviously had been put back upright and put back upright in the wrong position. So you've got to have an excuse for it having been toppled in the first place. Well, so I feel yeah, like I just, like right. these guys always have, you know, answers to every question. They have the answer for everything. Right. And I, I feel like that's a pretty typical thing. Now, m my question to you is, did William's story evolve from the first trial to the fourth trial? Did it get more intense? Was there more creative liberties that happened or did he pretty much stick to a script? He, and that was the point I was about to make about that. When you bring that up, it's very true. You might put somebody on the stand because you have to, because sure. there are things about it that somebody better explain. And so you think, okay, I'll put him on the stand to explain the chair. 
but you don't put them on the stand and then have them tell you that they don't have any idea how the chair got there. Oh, I wasn't paying attention to that chair. I don't, he didn't address the physical evidence. I'm like, why is he testifying? All he's doing is pontificating and is helping us because he looks like this megalomaniac. It doesn't make any sense. He doesn't explain any of the stuff. So it, to your point, that doesn't make sense because it's- Well, yeah, he's on stage. <laughs> he's on stage. He's on stage. You know, my father did similar things. You know, my father had rented a jackhammer that he used because my father was convicted of premeditated murder because it was premeditated. And a lot of people- They've seen the documentary. They were like, well, I wasn't clear. Did he kill her? Like, no, it was premeditated. You know, he rented the jackhammer prior to her murder. He he asked about lowering the basement floor in the home uh, where she was eventually found in the in, buried underneath the concrete floor in the basement. Um, you know, all these things were set up. And I think that, uh, you know, when he was being, you know, cross-examined, uh, he couldn't explain away these things, but was feeling like he was uh, because, well, you just take my word for it. It's kind of their thing. Well, cause I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the narcissist. I'm the sociopath and you should just believe me and trust me. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't understand why they, but you know what? Uh, I also had a judge. I also had a judge make a comment once because as you know, in a murder trial, well, in any trial, there's it comes a point about it comes a point when you ask is the defendant going to take the stand or not and if they decide not to there's a whole process that the court has to go through to question them to make sure they understand that they have the right to testify they have the right to cross-examine they have a right to confront their witnesses and if the decision is made not to get on the stand then it has to be a part of the record and then they can you know that's fine they can make that decision and they have to talk about what their attorneys told them. Were they well advised? Fine. I had that in a case happen when a fellow's not going to take the stand. Afterward, I'm talking to the judge in the case. And he says, you know, I have never understood that. I'm like, what do you mean? You mean not testifying? He said, look, if I'm on trial for my life, if I don't get on the stand, what am I telling people? He said, I just don't have a lot of respect for somebody that won't try to save their own life. He says, I get the strategic decision, but I can tell you, I don't think juries like it. Um, now, what happens is people like your dad and like Jim Williams, they're sociopaths. They think sure. that they will be believed. For example, I'll give you an example. The night that this thing happened, where had they been? Well, they had been to the drive-in back when we, well, there's a, I think that drive-in might still be there. It's kind of a goofy thing to go do. Yeah. They, had go, they, had gone, they had gone to the drive-in. Williams testifies that Danny Hansford, on the way to the drive-in, that they had stopped at the package store and they had gotten two half pints of wild turkey or some kind of liquor. And that during the movie, Hansford had smoked, oh, I don't know, six or seven or eight joints. Like, wait a minute. <laughs> and he drank the liquor and he's like, and I heard this drive-in. I'm, like, I'm thinking... So it, maybe he was smoking a, a maybe he was smoking the joint at the drive-in. Fine, but he couldn't he couldn't let it go at a joint. It had to be six or seven or eight. And I'm thinking, okay, I don't know about this jury, but I know what I know. I'm like, if I had eight joints, I smoked eight joints and I drank two half pints of, I would be outside the car on the ground at the drive-in. Yeah, exactly. And then the other thing is, of course, how about the drugs? Oh, no drugs are allowed in my house. Sure, but not at the drive-in. And my other question to Williams is, I didn't, I didn't cross-examine Williams, 
But my question in the book that I would have asked Williams is, so were you in the car at the drive-in? Did you not inhale the air in the car? Because yeah. he doesn't touch drugs, you know, William, no, 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 drugs are not for me. You're in a car where somebody supposedly smoked a half a dozen joints and you somehow didn't, you remained in a bubble. I, it's, the stuff that they say sometimes doesn't make sense. Well, I believe, they, I believe when I was in college, we called that hot boxing. So you know, he would have been hot boxed. Yes, he would have. <laughs> like it or not, right? He could have been a priest and he still would have been in there. You still have to breathe. Right. But it's like yeah. what it's, it's like your dad. It's like they can't. First of all, they believe that people will believe them. Yes. And they tend to exaggerate things, just to make their case a little better. Yeah, hyperbole becomes their uh, their only ally. Um, and, and Hansford, here's was the thing. What, you mentioned his story as he told the story over and over and over. He did try to adjust for where Hanford was standing. Because he needed to move him. His feet were at the wrong end of the tape of the uh, desk. His feet, because he had been shot, the first shot entered his chest and severed his aorta. He was dead in the space of a half, four seconds. He fell completely straight down, didn't move. And that was from their own testimony. Their own experts testified to that. He fell down, he never moved, he was dead in the, no, 10 seconds. Well, his feet were at the end of the desk where the chair had been and where the cigarette was ground out into the top of the leather table. My feeling is that was the trigger because this was his antiques and his possessions were- Everything right? to him. Because yeah. Hansford used to do this. His friend said this. He said, you know, Danny would piss Williams off. He'd do it intentionally. He did it all the time because then Williams would blow up at him and then later he'd feel bad and he'd buy him something. He'd buy him something, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's what he did. That was their pattern. Wow. <laughs> well, um, that, that's what happened. I think that's what happened in this case. We never had to prove. We didn't have to prove that Williams planned it, didn't plan it, how it happened. All we had to prove was that it wasn't self-defense because he had admitted shooting him. So if we could prove that it, the, the self-defense theory fell apart, he's standing there having confessed to having shot the kid. Sure. So we didn't have to go into what was the cigarette doing down here? What was the chair doing? What probably happened that led up to this? But we did, you know, he, so he did try to, he tried to change that. He said, oh, he, we came in. And every time he said he came into the room, he would say, well, he came in and he was raging. He was raging. Raging became the word of the day. He must've said it 50 times. He, oh, he was raging. He came in and he was raging. I mean, this, he also spoke in a way that most people don't. It's this heightened type of language. It's almost like he was an aristocrat from somewhere. He was, yeah, it was very highfalutin. Very highfalutin. Well, that oh, you know, obviously a uh, high level of intelligence goes hand in hand with sociopathy and narcissism, yeah. for sure. And uh, yeah, like you, uh, you used, you know, you said earlier, it's like he was pontificating to everyone from the witness box. Yes. Well, they convicted him uh, the first time, and I wasn't surprised. I did uh, actually, you know, I did, I did the final closing in the case, and um, I, I think I said to the jury, I forget what I said exactly, but I said to them basically, uh, you've you've had a view into a, a side of life in Savannah that most people never see. It's in a different world, and this is the world they lived in. They, this was normal for them 
this was normal behavior for Williams. I was told uh, later by someone who knew him quite well, and I don't know if this is true. I don't think I put it in the book because I, I assume it's true because I've known this person all my life. Um, and he knew Williams quite well downtown in that neighborhood. And he said, Jim Williams used to pay people to go over into the projects with money and pay a kid and bring him back to the house. Wow. That's the kind of guy he was. And then he got latched on to Danny Hansford and he was, I don't know what you'd call it, to his psychosis. But it was one thing he could not control. He could not control him. And in the end, I think that's what happened. I think Hansford pushed him one too many times. He had apparently a temper. Yeah. You know, and it came out occasionally on the stand because whenever Spencer Lawton was the DA, uh, who went on to serve for 35 years in that position, Spencer would cross-examine him, and you could just see what's getting so irritated and agitated. And that doesn't help either, like you said about uh, motive. A jury watches people. They watch the lawyers. They can decide. I have had juries come up with decisions. That's another thing about trying cases. You think you know. You think you made this brilliant point. And you think if you win a case that you won it because of this, because of your argument, and because, oh, it was about this. And it was, here's why, you know, we really nailed them on the blood. If you're a defense lawyer, you're like, yeah, I got them. You know, I got them. I think they really went for this. There. You talk to jurors afterwards, and it is incredible the things they come up with for doing reasons they come up with for doing what they do. Sometimes it's not your brilliance whatsoever. It could be, I don't like the lawyer's tie. That guy, I just didn't believe him. Anything he said, were you talking about the defendant? No, I'm talking about his lawyer. It's like, what? Where did you come up with this stuff? So they are very observant and they really watch the defendant. They don't just watch them when they're testifying. They watch them when they're in the courtroom. They watch them at the table. They watch their reaction to evidence. They watch into that, and he did not do that well. What happened, and I'll tell you, there were four trials, I get it. First one was reversed. Second one was reversed again, he was convicted. The third one, he was, I say, it was ended up 11 to one for guilty. And that's a completely different story. There was a person on the jury, years later when I was working on the book, I came back and I talked to uh, Detective Reagan who was the homicide detective, lead detective in that case. He was running a task force at the time. I went to see him. I said, so what do you think about all this? And we talked about the third trial, which ended 11 to one. There was a person on there that hung that jury. And he said, well, you know what happened in that case? I said, no, I didn't. And in fact, the DA didn't know it. My friend, he didn't know that. And this is what I'm working on the book years later. He says, the fact was, I, we already tried this twice. Here's a third trial. And my uh, lieutenant, would not allow me to go to the jury selection portion of the trial because I'd already spent so much time on this thing. And he's like, look, you can go to the trial because as you know, uh, the, the, the detectives will, will sit with the prosecution during the trial. So he was gonna do that, but he didn't go to the jury selection portion, which they normally would. They'd be there from day one. He said, he wouldn't let me go. He said, I got other things to do. You've got cases. You don't need to go down there and watch him pick a jury. So he didn't go. And he said, if I had been there, that woman would never have been on the jury. Really, I know her. I had served warrants at her house. Her husband, her boyfriend slash husband is what we call a safe burglar. These are the guys that would break into a, into a store, take the safe out, burn the store and take this. I mean, this guy is a professional criminal. 
we have been after him and she is his girl and we've been to her house i know her like i know what was she doing on the jury she's on the jury that's incredible how did that happen i said well i don't think spencer knew any of that he said well if i'd been there i'd have told him well she hung the jury and there was no way she was going to convict then they go to trial number four which was now over nine years later and it's in augusta so they moved the trial and i deal with this in the book i said because they acquitted him they acquitted him like how is this possible back to my earlier comment whoa wait 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 the chair's still there the residue's still there the blood's still there I, I, how in the world did they cut him loose so i had to go through and come up with an analysis of why i think maybe he was acquitted finally yeah one of those pieces was that in the early and you, this is about your dad and it's about jim williams sure in the earlier part of this when he was pontificating and he was showing off he was irritating he looked like somebody who thought that this this kid was a piece of trash and was a gnat that he could swat sure at the time of the last trial now it's nine and a half years later and i talked to the court reporter who sat through that trial and i said was there anything different she says the only thing i can tell you that was different was his demeanor it was like he had been beaten down plus he's nine and a half years older sure. right sure. so he's he looked like this look this old man who probably i don't know he just didn't he was not the same arrogant jerk that he was in the first trials and it just was like he was on with a different person you know my analysis was that the people in this other city who didn't know him this is something else that happens with juries this case had been tried three times now you're in a different city and all of a sudden here comes this trial into your town and you're on a sitting on a jury you say well isn't this and it was well known throughout the state of georgia it was a big deal there were allegations of connected to the former governor i mean the supreme court some shenanigans here it was all over the paper everybody knew about this case so you see that it's been brought here you see that he's been tried three times you see that he's still here so those those trials those convictions were reversed then there was a hung jury so what are you thinking thinking something's wrong with this case there must be a reason that they keep throwing it out this is subconscious there must be a reason they had to come to augusta to get justice for this man got to be something to this and my final comment about it was and you look at this guy and he doesn't look like the commandant of the tank corps anymore he looks like this harmless old man and you know what it's been nine and a half years he's probably not going to kill anybody else and if he does it's not going to be in my town right and so they let him go but here's wow what's that it, it sounds like when you refer to the fact that they went to the projects and brought back kids, you're talking about kids under the age of 18. So this guy oh, yeah. was basically a pedophile. Oh, yeah. Wow. People in the town, I'm assuming, you know, for the most part would know. Nobody knew this. Yeah, they had. Oh, they, they weren't aware of his behavior. Oh, gosh, no. Gosh, no. Nobody knew this except people who really knew him. That's what I'm saying. It's the it's and this is I don't think it's. Uh, you might say it's something about out of Tennessee, Williams, you know, that it's one yeah. of those yeah. you know, Southern Gothic stories. And sure. I think that's one reason, if you want to know why I think the Midnight Book did so well, John Barrett's book, 
it's not accurate. It's not, it's, it's fiction. Um, and it, it doesn't even tell you about the fourth trial. The, one of the reasons I think that it became so popular was not because it was about this murder case, because it was barely about this murder case. I think the murder case was his way in. He didn't even show up until after the second trial. He wasn't there in the beginning, even though in the movie he is, but he wasn't. Okay. It was because it was about Savannah and it was about the court sure. characters. It was about the guy Absolutely. who wants a dog, an invisible dog, and the people yeah. who had the guy has flies on a string, and the the the, uh, the cotillion, and uh, the people who talk like that, and they all got guns hidden somewhere, and all this stuff. I think it was such so delicious. It was a summer read. You sit on a beach, you could read it quickly. Yeah, and it was pretty good, but it wasn't this case. So I think like it's that that environment is not only unique to the South. But it is this environment where you have people who have two lives. Maybe you go to Italy where, I don't know if this is true anymore, but in, at, at one time, men have, men, they have, there was a place in New Jersey that I knew, somebody who worked. It was a roadhouse and she was the chief bartender. And she said, we had two nights. Friday night was girlfriend night. No, or, or the other way around, I'm not sure. Saturday night was, it was for the wives. Yeah, yeah Martin Scorsese says that in, uh, you know, they say that in Goodfellas. Yep, same guy <laughs> would come in one yeah. night with the girlfriend, one night with the family. Nobody said a word. And I'm sure the wife knew, but it was just, you didn't talk about it. You didn't talk about it. Yeah. And that is the taboo of the old way of doing things. Southern. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. It's sort of uh, swap culture, if you will. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a fascinating thing, but I, I still, I still struggle with, and there were some things that happened uh, legally. There were some things that happened with some decisions that the uh, courts that started to restrict the ability of uh, experts to testify about certain things. And, and they went into that fourth trial uh, with a, a brand new case that the judge had to interpret from the Georgia Supreme Court and interpreted it in a way that I thought was even more restrictive than the court asked him to do, which meant that the uh, expert testimony from the people in the crime lab and the firearms experts and the head forensic guy from the they, they were they couldn't draw conclusions, so they basically couldn't walk the jury through the through this evidence that we've talked about. Sure. They couldn't talk about why the hand being here with the blood being here and not there matters, why the timing of it matters, why the sequence of the shots are different. There was the last the, the last shot was was fired through Hansford's back after he was face down on the floor. He's already dead. The third shot went straight through his back into the floor. And I was there when they dug the bullet out of the floor. Yeah. All right. He claimed that he was behind his desk the entire time. That is not possible. You would have to bend a bullet in flight for that to happen. For sure. But you have to have somebody explain that to a jury. Now, I think you do, and I, or, I, or I think if you're relying on the experts to do it, if you're relying on your expert to draw all those diagrams the, and you end up at the last second not having them be, to do that and you aren't prepared to do it, then I think that's what happened in that case. I think he, he seemed a little more, you know, less threatening and they didn't have the expert testimony they needed. The detective was not allowed to walk the jury through the case and to see the evidence as it appeared and to say, what, here's this. Now, I did talk to the court reporter, as I told you, and I said, what do you think, Barb? She said, I'll tell you what I've always thought about that case. And if I had it, I wish I had it. I would put it up on the screen. I'd show it to you. The, 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 the image of that chair planted on his pants leg and halfway up his body 
She said, my opinion has always been that you could have taken that photo and blown it up and hung it in the courtroom and rested your case. Now, you didn't. And what happens is if you don't, you try to explain things, it becomes complicated. Complication is the friend of the defense. The more complicated it is, the more places they can find reasonable doubt. Uh, but she said, look, there's no way to explain that chair. She sat through four trials. She said, it can't be explained. And they still let him go. I said, do you know why? She said, I think it's because he just had been later. It was in Augusta. And he just didn't look like he was all that threatening. And they just decided to cut him loose. Um, it's fascinating. I want to tell you this, just one, one tidbit. Sure. Uh, I don't know if it's 30 days later or 60 days later. Um, he was found dead in his, in his, in the same study where he was shot Hansford. He had a heart attack. He fell dead across the threshold of that study, wearing nothing but a t-shirt and apparently had been entertaining some guests of his that evening before because there were cocktail glasses around here and there. And apparently after he dropped dead, they didn't stick around. Oh, that. that was the life he led. Wow. So eventually, you know, eventually, I guess he, uh, karma. Yeah. Karma. Something. Uh, that's fascinating. We have been, uh, speaking with Depp Kirkland. He is the author of lawyer games after midnight in the garden of good and evil. Depp, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, fascinating, fascinating story. Um, glad to be with you. Thank you. Uh, it's a, there's a lot to it. I'm sorry. It's, you know, it, it, it can go on. As, Bar, as Brenda will tell you, right. there is that's the tip of the iceberg about this case and everything that I'm happened. Sure. But, I'm sure. Uh, it, I'm sure. You know, who knew? Who gone. knew? <laughs> when I, you know, I get called in the middle of the night, four o'clock in the morning to go to a, to come down here for a minute. Who knew it was going to turn into this? And who knew it was going to turn into this tourist tsunami that's engulfed Savannah? Still to this day, people still go to that house. And then, uh, and then they'll go to the bookstore nearby and they get my book and they get uh, Barrett's book. And uh, they are told, they said, look, if you go to the house and you care about the Williams case, you need to read the original Midnight and you've got to read this book. Besides, it's got you the gotta read the companion. There. It's got the photos. <laughs> um, well, uh, again, thank you so much, Step Kirkland. Uh, it's been an honor to talk to you, sir. That was a really interesting conversation with Depp. One of the reasons why I wanted to have him on the program is not only because I really enjoy that movie, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. I remember seeing it in the theaters a long time ago. But also, uh, you know, he's seen a side of the law that not many of us get to. I mean, we see these sort of dramas play out on television, I suppose, or in our own fantasy worlds on a true crime podcast, maybe. I don't know. But for the most part, you know, he has an insider's look. And... It's tough because it has me, again, questioning our justice system in a way that I really hadn't done before. Because ultimately, if you look at it, my father was convicted of the murder of my mother. He did have a high-powered team of lawyers, and he ultimately lost, mostly because of the impact of his 12-year-old son. <laughs> but nonetheless, um, however, it, it does make me feel and think about the people who I've interviewed on this program, like... Melissa McKinnis, for example, who was in a couple episodes ago, who's still looking for justice for her son, Donye Dion Jones, right? And evidence being destroyed and things of that nature. It's, it's heartbreaking. So 
as much as I, as much as I have respect for the justice system and that I feel it served me, it doesn't serve everyone in the same way. And that's unfortunate. And hopefully with conversations like these, we can begin to change that narrative in this country and around the world. Um, I mean, look, life is not fair. It sometimes it really sucks. If life were fair, ultimately my mother would still be here. She wouldn't have been murdered, but that's what it is. I mean, it's tough. It's tough. But, um, again, I want to hear from you guys, my listeners. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Thanks, y'all. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible. Find us on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Collier Landry. The film A Murder in Mansfield is available on Investigation Discovery, Discovery Plus, and Amazon Prime Video. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio in association with RSA Entertainment. Please visit mpmpodcast.com to show your support today.